the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey, and with me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody. Just back from New York, a really quick trip. I am terribly <laughs> jet-lagged. <laughs> she I've is. Do- I've been doing a lot of traveling over the past couple weeks, but we got a lot of cool stuff going up on the site, including something that's coming uh, in this very podcast, Nadia. Mm, good stuff, good stuff. We've got an interview with Josh Sawyer, who is a legendary RPG designer Indeed. who has worked on many of the greatest RPGs for Black Isle Studios and now Obsidian. And he talks about Pillars of Eternity Deadfire. Nadia, Pillars of Eternity just came out on console this week. As you know, I am a fan of that RPG. Yes, indeed you are. You are quite the fan. <laughs> you really should play it. It's, it's pretty good. I think you would like it. You know, now that it's on console, that's an easier sell for me because, mm-hmm. uh, well, as you know, my computer, even though I bought a computer, I, I went up to the guy and I said, hey, you know, I, I want a computer that can handle mo- like Steam games. And he's like, oh, yeah, this one's fine. And he gave me a laptop, which has like, he has plenty of RAM, has plenty of sta- uh, space, but the video card is terrible. So yes. that was my fault for trusting a salesperson. <laughs> My yeah. father's a salesperson, so I'm allowed to say that. The in, the answers are always on the internet, Nadia. And the not <laughs> I in know, the, but the internet tells me to build my own PC, and it's like, I don't think nobody got time for that. It's true. The internet will tell you not to buy a gaming laptop because gaming laptops are closed and inherently disposable. Mm-hmm. Um and plus, you're going to pay freaking more money. <laughs> you're going to pay more money for a laptop than you are for a gaming PC at the end of the day. I have yeah, this gaming right. PC over here that is awesome and does everything I need it to do. It is now three years old, but I can swap out the GPU and probably get a, a few more years out of it because the processor is just fine. And I paid 1000 bucks for it. I paid less than that for this laptop, but... Uh, oh, okay. So, you I mean, at least you didn't pay like $1,300 or whatever that people are paying for MacBooks. <laughs> no, I am not buying a MacBook. My brother is the, the Mac nerd of the family and not me. Yes, I refuse to have to buy a MacBook, though my girlfriend has one. And I just judge her every day. <laughs> Does she swear by it? Does she worship it? She doesn't worship it, but she that's just what she's used to pl- using. And she doesn't really play games uh, that much, except right. for zelda or whatever so it's no skin off her nose or whatever so yes uh i also just got back from new york checking out nba 2k which can i can i just briefly rant a little bit about this nadia uh promise i promise that we won't (laughs) have too much of a cat bailey sports minute here but it is rpg related i promise okay okay so you're, you're clear to go then Okay, so they have stats in NBA 2K. Uh, mm-hmm. You have this character, and they are your main character through all the modes, right? You mm-hmm. can turn them into a GM, and they put on a tie, and they're building their team. <laughs> That's cute. Or you can have them playing in a career, and they're becoming an NBA star. Or you can take them out to the playground, and they're playing with other people, who oh. other people's characters. It's actually kind of cool. But yeah. in the past, the way that you always leveled them up was with money. Mm. It was BS. Because 
you would use this virtual currency that you would earn by playing throughout the rest of the game. Right. And that's how you leveled up their stats. And right. that same currency was used to say, buy clothes for them and do other things throughout the game because it's a universal currency. And by the way, you can <laughs> buy that currency. Of course, of course. So what people will do is buy enough currency to get their character up to level 99 and then just go, <laughs> whatever. Because otherwise you just have to grind and grind and grind. Yeah. Ah, it's so annoying. I don't like it. But they've kind of fixed it this year. Mm-hmm. So the way that they've kind of fixed it is there's a bar. And by doing things around the game, like literally anything, you raise the bar, like the mm-hmm. bar will go up. And once it hits that level, then you can start putting stuff into the different stats. Okay, so you can't just like dump a whole bunch of money into it at once and say, yay, I have a super player. Yes, they've basically put barriers in place Mm -hmm. um, and made it so that progression isn't just a matter of spending as much virtual currency as possible. You still have to spend virtual currency. Of course. Because God forbid that they uncouple (laughs) the microtransactions from the progression in the game. (laughs) Because they know... They know that there are people who will spend that money and that it's worth a lot of money. And it drives me crazy that they do that. Even EA is not that craven. Well, we, we've done this to ourselves, I guess. I, I guess, but I just NBA 2K gets a lot of praise from a lot of people and people are like going, oh, they do it right and everything. But that mm-hmm. is an aspect that I just... Uh, <sighs> I, God forbid that we see that in like proper RPGs because people would lose their mind. (laughs) Could you imagine if in Final Fantasy 15, you could just pump a whole bunch of money in and suddenly you're level 99? You could do that in uh, Final Fantasy 7 for Steam. I don't know if you could put money into uh, stats. Maybe you can, but I do know you can like buy a bunch of like Phoenix Downs and stuff with, uh, with real money in case you suck that bad at the game. Of course, all the Phoenix Downs in the world isn't bringing Eris back, so don't bother. <laughs> I don't know why you would do that, though, because half the fun is leveling up. And yeah, it really yeah. bothers me when they balance it in such a way that they ruin the arc of the progression mm-hmm. because they want you to spend money. Like, one mm-hmm. of the biggest problems with NBA 2K is that you have to grind a ton, right? right. You start at, like, level 50. You're a first-round pick, and you start at, like, level 55 <laughs> in that game. <laughs> And you suck. You're terrible. (laughs) And so basically, you just have to put the difficulty on rookie and bang your head against the computer over and over and over again (laughs) until finally you get to the point where your character is (laughs) semi-competent. Sports. Uh, Sports. I I don't know. But you can check. If if for some reason you are in that rare cross-section of RPG fan and sports fan, which, by the way, everybody always goes, Kat, you're such a unicorn. You love the JRPGs? And you love the sports. I don't understand. And I'm like, well, they, <laughs> they are, are both heavily like... stats-based. Shrug? I mean, if, I was, if I was more interested in the actual activity of sports, I could see where the appeal of playing sports games would come from. Like, especially mm. for you, like, you love all the stats and the... You still have... And nowadays, they're really focused more and more on the story. Like, mm-hmm. all the story modes they have going on. Like, and hell, I mean, what is fantasy football but D&D? Yes. Well, no, no, no. So, it is not D&D. It is oh, okay. nothing like D&D. It is playing the stock market. That is what <laughs> fantasy football is. No, hey, I'm serious. Playing the stock market more like D&D. Uh, I mean, you, you are basically 
figuring out future buying futures and trying to buy low and sell high and mm, trying okay. to you're basically trying to minimize your risk and maximize your reward and that's what okay. it is it's all figuring out analytics and everything but uh i don't think there is a sports D, but you know what that would be kind of fun to play that would be fun to play i'd, I'd give that a try yeah i mean darkest dungeon but instead of having you know a crazy priest and a thief and a highway robber you have uh an nfl player and a baseball player and a hockey player exploring the deepest darkest uh places of yankee stadium and <laughs> and it's led by neymar or messi Just like in the stand yes okay that's enough sports i i think that our audiences are uh, I, I don't think our audience really wants to hear us talk about that stuff but one oh. thing that they might want us to talk about is there are a whole bunch of nintendo indie announcements nadia and one of them uh kind of stood out to me it was dragon marked for death do you want to talk about it really quickly well, I don't know much more than anyone else, but it looks really interesting. I mean, it's by Intercreates, which uh, is the company behind a lot of great 2D games um, and even like uh, like for uh, retro games. For example, they did Blaster Master Zero, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they did Mega Man Zero back in the day. Um, apparently, Dragon Mark for Death actually brings back some of the team that worked on Mega Man ZX, hmm. which was a really interesting take on the Mega Man franchise. I mean, it was starting to get to the point where it's a little too far removed from Mega Man for my tastes uh, because it actually was a, a direct successor to Mega Man Zero, which of course is a successor to Mega Man X, which is a successor to Mega Man <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was kind of weird in that you saw like X and Zero, but they were like biometals or something weird like that. But the game, it, the gameplay itself was solid and the character designs were great. So I am definitely looking forward to seeing them do a, a 2D RPG is, is what it apparently is. Like, it I looks think, like a beat-em-up. Yeah, but apparently they call it an RPG. So Sure, it reminds me of Guardian Heroes. Yeah, yeah. So you know what? I, I am really looking forward to giving this a try. Mm. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I like the art, and it looks pretty fun, and it's kind of an RPG beat-em-up. I, I think that RPG beat-em-ups can be pretty fun if done well. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved Auden Sphere, so... Sure. Uh, um, Scott Pilgrim is a, actually a pretty good example. Yeah, I mean, it's a little grind heavy, but mm-hmm. I just, <laughs> I really liked the, the combat in that game. It felt really satisfying to beat up enemies. And, ah, God, the art in that game was so good. I just wish it weren't as buggy. I love Paul Robinson. Mm. He, he, he just does some of the greatest work out there. And, of course, it, was t- it took place in Toronto, so that's an instant, like, plus one from me. Having a beat 'em up set up set in Toronto is yeah. that amazing? I mean, yeah, God, is, you don't get that very often. <laughs> the, the only thing that comes close is Udon did an official piece of uh, Street Fighter fan, uh, art for uh, Capcom, and if you look closely, you can see all the fighters. There's the whole lineup. They're they're standing by a Toronto bus stop. It's clearly the TTC, and that was the only other thing I can think of that's like remotely related to like beat 'em ups in Toronto. But yeah, mm-hmm. with Scott Pilgrim, you're like beating the crap out of people and taking their loonies and toonies. Scott Pilgrim, the quintessential Toronto movie. Just like Mighty Ducks is a quintessential Minnesota movie. But <laughs> My mom saw that movie and she came home so mad that they said goal instead of score. Because <laughs> she took my brother to see it. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing that you get really hung up on when you're from Toronto, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Very much so. Uh, unfortunately, Honest Dead's uh, shut down, so that's one less. Uh, oh yeah, I saw that. I don't even yeah. know what Honest Dead's is, but it seemed like a neighborhood institution. 
it was uh, uh, emphasis on institution. Uh, it's a very big, very bright landmark. More condos for everyone, I guess. Yes, I suppose. Oh, by the way, if you want to hear Nadia rant a little bit about uh, the new Secret of Mana remake, which uh, we talked about that on the US Gamer podcast, which <laughs> yeah. came out on Wednesday, goes up every Wednesday, you should subscribe to it on iTunes. It's a good podcast. I, I like the group that we've got. We've got Mike and Katie joining Nadia and myself. But we talked a little bit about, well, mostly sprite art versus 2.5D, mm-hmm. the 2.5D look and that everything, which I, I think is particularly pertinent because I'm in the middle of playing Metroid Samus Returns at the moment. Yeah, and uh, when Matt played that game, he said I, he said it looks really nice. But um, uh, um, <laughs> I'm back and forth on it. To be honest, like one moment I'll be like, oh, this looks really nice, right? Yeah. Uh, especially when the camera's swooping in or it kind of rotates so that you can pour a whole bunch of missiles into a Metroid or whatever. But uh, at other points I'll be like, oh, the, the enemies don't look super detailed or good. And Samus like kind of moves like a puppet, I suppose, <laughs> almost like this marionette that's kind of flopping along as she's she running. Carry all that weight, man. But she's that. such a badass in this game. Oh my god! I wrote a I wrote a preview about it on the I'm site. Have to read, I didn't get to read the preview. Yet. I'm going to have to read that. I'll talk a little bit about it on the podcast. But there's so many cool things that she can do just by virtue of the fact that you can use the shoulder buttons to quickly yeah. access her different weapons. Yeah. And she can do things like hang on a ledge and turn around and shoot. That's awesome. Yeah, which is required to solve certain puzzles. And once you get the ice beam and you are using it to take out alpha Metroids, you feel like such a badass because (laughs) you charge that thing up and shoot and suddenly this massive ice crystal forms on the other side of the alpha Metroid and it's kind of going... You feel really bad. And when you take it out, you just feel awesome. And you can point (laughs) in any direction. It's very different from the original Metroid too. Yeah, which is not a, such a terrible thing because that was an ambitious game that was just really kind of... It was so easy to get lost in that game. I just gave up after a while. I did play another Metroid 2 remake, though. Yes, um, I'd be... I, I played a bunch of another Metroid 2 remake. I think another Metroid 2 remake cues a bit closer to the classic, classic Metroid. Mm-hmm. But this one still feels like Metroid. It's just... Yeah. yeah, but I'll have more thoughts about that on the US Gamer Podcast. Last thing... Before we head over to the interview, uh, you should go check out my feature, The Last Days of Black Isle Studios, which is derived in part from a much longer interview that I did with Josh Sawyer, because I'm, I'm profiling him next week. And he talked at some length about what it was like to be there, to be basically shut off the lights. And oh. I was kind of like, wow, man, what a story. So I ended up kind of... Uh, I ended up talking to Chris Avalone and uh, Fergus Urquhart and Brian Fargo and those people and a little bit about what the final days of Black Isle Studios was like and how it got to that point. I got to say, as somebody who kind of watched several companies go under firsthand, I really understood what had happened to them. I really identified with what happened to them. So I can imagine. Yeah. I've uh, I've seen several go under, but I was always kind of working remotely, so mm-hmm. it's not the same as physically like shutting off the lights, so to speak. But still, it hurts. It hurts. It just reminded me a lot of the decline and fall of One Up, where yeah. which it was this kind of also a meteoric success it was this amazing thing. But it really only lasted about you know six seven years, right before. Mm-hmm. 
uh, the layout the f- the layoffs happen in like year five of one up. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah. after that, it was just a slow and steady decline. The first time I ever walked into the one up offices, it was just it was like a ghost town. They only they had this oh. massive floor on a San Francisco high rise, which used to contain all the magazines that worked under Ziff mm-hmm. on that floor. And they had moved into one corner of that office and there's just tons and tons and tons of empty space. It, oh, so you could heart's broken. So I could find any spot I wanted to and just hole up and start uh, and start writing. Was, man. And uh, it was just a slow and steady decline until they finally till Jeremy really finally turned off the that. lights. What a great sight that was. Uh, it was too good for this world to be honest. I mean, it was really ridiculously ahead of its time. It really uh, was. And I mean, as usual, it wasn't necessarily the fault of One Up. It was mo- more the fault of the financial turbulence of Ziff Davis. Mm-hmm. You know, Ziff Davis was having a lot of trouble at that time. They couldn't really pay the bills. They ended up selling off One Up over to uh, what was it, Hearst? And yeah, Hearst was right. extreme penny pinching, demanding that they produce. The kind of content that would get lots of traffic. And then Hearst, in turn, sold it off to IGN. And the rest and, is history. And IGN killed him. Yep. Just, IGN, IGN has killed a I, couple of sites I worked for. <laughs> IGN bought one up solely so that they could get the, the traffic. And then they just put him in a corner and said, well, have fun. We're not going to give you any support whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, days pe- are numbered. It, it was sad. And in the terms of Black Isle, Black Isle was doing fine. Mm-hmm. Black Isle was doing just fine for themselves for the most part. It was the rest of Interplay that was a clusterfuck. Oh man, part of my it's language. Be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was just. I mean, they were putting out games that were critically acclaimed, mm-hmm. like Free Space, but f- they weren't selling. <laughs> they were too yeah. expensive to make, and yeah. they had like six hundred employees. And games like Star Trek: Secret of Vulcan Fury were flopping, and they the PC market was changing too fast in the 90s mm-hmm. and yeah anyway go read the feature it's really good <laughs> good pitch all right uh in the next segment i am gonna have josh sawyer here on the podcast and we're gonna be talking a little bit about pillars of eternity dead fire so don't go away All right, I am actually at Obsidian here in Irvine, California, and I am with RPG design legend Josh Sawyer. Welcome back to the show. Hi. And we're going to talk a little bit about Pillars of Eternity Deadfire, which is coming out, I think, early next year? Yep, we're currently looking at a Q1 release next year. Uh, I mean, I was a big fan of Pillars of Eternity. Thank you. Um, It was just a fabulous little RPG. a real throwback to the days of the isometric RPGs, the Infinity Engine, and all of that. Like looking back on the original uh, Pillars of Eternity, like how you feel like it turned out, like uh, how happy are with you with it, and what do you kind of hope to address with uh, Deadfire? I think it turned out pretty well. Um, we were figuring out a lot of things as we were going, especially when it came to technology. Uh, also, we. You know, we hadn't done a game like that in quite a while. And I say we, but for some of the people working on the game, uh, even people who had been in the industry for a while, it was the first time they had worked on an isometric game of that style. 
So there were some growing pains as people kind of figured out how to write quests, how to think about a party and things like that, how to design levels for exploration by a party of six people, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think there were definitely some pacing problems, especially toward the end of the game. Uh, there were certain story and narrative elements like the fact that uh, the factions in Defiance Bay kind of fell off the face of the earth as soon as you left the city. Um, yeah, there were a lot of things like that. Uh, the lack of a clear and present threat in the early game was something a lot of people criticized. And then there were other things that were a little more technical, like the character models and the lighting and stuff like that. And those are things we've really, all that stuff is stuff that we've tried to address in Deadfire. My recollection of the original Pillars of Eternity is less that there are I'm not sure that I minded that there wasn't a clear and present threat because, like, there was a lot of mystery early on about, like, who are you? Like, what's going on? Like, it's presenting a lot of, like, things, uh, a lot of different things are going on. So just right at the very beginning, the mystery is what drives it forward. And then as you uncover more of the mystery, that's when the threat starts to come in. Yeah, I mean, and that was sort of the idea. But in some cases, people didn't even get the mystery part. <laughs> they were just kind of like, I don't I don't understand. Why do I care? Why should I? Why am I following this guy? Um, so we still want there to be a sense of mystery in Deadfire, but we just want the hook to be a little stronger and clearer for people. So I'm hoping that a 700 foot tall man made of stone is, <laughs> is a stronger hook. Uh, and instead of creating an entirely new character, you're continuing the story of the Watcher, uh, despite the fact that, um, I mean, I mean, is it fair to say that the, their story was kind of resolved at the end of the original Pillars of Eternity? I mean, you do defeat the, the, the main villain, right? Well, you do, but I mean, one of the things that we have a dare say in the, uh, in the intro, so if anyone who followed our Fig campaign probably saw the trailer with uh, the animatic that shows Aethys, you know, animating the statue and coming out. And Adair says uh, something ominous like, uh, somehow, somehow I think the gods aren't quite finished with us. So that's that's really like, yeah, you, you know, you thought you were kind of done with that, but the gods, they have other things in mind. The god that you thought, like, that was dead at the beginning of the original Pillars of Eternity, they're back. Yes, there's that. Um, but there's also the other gods are also along to cause problems, so... So you're basically you're heightening the uh, you're heightening the stakes for Dead Fire. Yeah, I know, and it was something that we kind of struggled with, or at least I struggled with on Pillars One, because a lot of people wanted Pillars One to be Baldur's Gate Two, and there are a number of reasons why that would have been really hard to achieve. Uh, one of which is that you know we were just starting from scratch in a lot of ways, and also because it didn't feel like like in Baldur's Gate Two you really had built. You know, Bioware built upon what happened in Baldur's Gate 1. And I wanted to start out with a threat that was more regional than sort of like, you know, global or, you know, heavenly scope. And then have uh, our sequel grow into something that felt like it was much larger in scope. And then theoretically, if, if hopefully we get to make a third game, then it can be, you know, like something that's even bigger after that. So, um, I did want to up the stakes, up the involvement of the gods, um make the player feel like their role as the Watcher was growing in importance respective to these people and also in the world itself. So death and resurrection uh, were kind of major themes in Pillars of Eternity. Like, what were some of the major themes of Deadfire? Well, um, let's see. I don't want to spoil really too much, but obviously... No, spoil all of it. Uh, all of it. Obviously, um, you know, second chances are sort of, you know, the, the idea of coming back for a second chance. Um, is very important uh, for, a, for a number of reasons. 
Um, there's also a lot of questions about uh, what role should the gods play in people's lives? Um, to what extent should people and societies be free to sort of govern their own morals and, and determine their own destinies? Uh, which are things that are sort of touched on in Pillars. Um, but at the end of Pillars, you I don't want to spoil it for people, but you learn something about the gods that sort of casts what they're doing in a very different light. And so there's a lot of focus on on that, on the gods and their role in, in society and, and the relationship between mortals and the gods. So Pillars of Eternity had six party members. Mm-hmm. Dead Fighter will have five. Yes. Why did you go to five? Well, it was largely about uh, realistically what a player could be expected to play with and pace. Like people have said, well, it was fine in Icewind Dale and Baldur's Gate. But the fact of the matter is that in many cases, half of your party members were auto attacking um, in, in Baldur's Gate or Icewind Dale. So there wasn't a ton to micromanage when it came to those characters, unless it was microing movement. Um, and we found that combat in Pillars, and there, the number of party members was not the only reason for this, but the number of characters in Pillars made it, uh, among other reasons, hard to follow what was going on in combat. Um, and we found, uh, we heard feedback from a lot of people that off they had about a m- enough attention to actively manage five characters or six if you included an uh, animal companion since they're fairly m- low maintenance. But once it went above that, uh, there was always someone who was kind of idle in the background or was mm-hmm. kind of getting forgotten about. And I, I do think that four, I wasn't comfortable with going to four. I didn't think that would be a good change. But five, especially with a ranger with an animal companion, which really effectively takes you back to six with one of those characters being largely passive, I believed, and, and so far in play, it feels like that is a, it's it's certainly enough to manage. <laughs> like, you have stuff for everybody to do all the time, um, but it's really, again, at about the sort of the limit. And so I think it's been a good change. Yeah, I was going to say five feels kind of like the, the sweet spot, right? Because... I mean, if you're down to four, like suddenly you start to feel a little hamstrung because you're going, well, I got to have a mage and how do I feel like have healing and I better have a tank of some sort. All right. Who fills in this last role? Yeah. Right. It leaves. I mean, it kind of limits your flexibility. And that's one thing that drives me like that has always kind of bugged me about four party member mm-hmm. RPGs like Dragon. This was a huge thing in Dragon Age Origins, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you get five, you know, like you can start getting. Uh, more interesting characters, not the least because like one of the big additions in Deadfire is multi-classing. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to have even more flexibility in how you kind of define the roles of the different characters. Very much so. so. I think it's really important that you be able to have uh, as much freedom as possible uh, defining your party without it becoming unwieldy. Yeah. Um, so on that note, like, let's talk a little bit about the multi-classing. Um, multi-classing, of course, is a time-honored RPG trope. Like, how do you want to in- implement it into Deadfire? So we've actually been experimenting with a lot of different things. Um, we're going to be going into detail about this in our next big update. I think we're going to have another update that's on sort of director feed stuff. But then the one following that is going to go like a deep dive on the multi-classing. Um, we... You know, we basically wanted to allow people to combine classes in any way that didn't cause mechanical problems. <laughs> so a mechanical problem would be something like you can't combine a paladin order with a priest god where their dispositions are inherently in conflict because it becomes almost impossible to play that character without them becoming screwed up in some way. 
Um, so other than that, we wanted to say like, you know, combine characters however you want. And we also thought about the different multi-classing systems we've seen in class-based games and when they felt uh, like they work best. And also even looking at uh, classless games and how their progression systems worked to make generalists feel uh, good, which is really when you talk about a multi-class character, they're, you're, you have to give up something for the fact that you're able to do more stuff. Um, so for us, it's peak power. Like peak power is in terms of like a multi-class character is going to get access to powers later than a single class character and ultimately will not be able to achieve the most high level powers that a single class character has. But they get access to everything that those two classes have to do. Um, so it gives you more flexibility and of course, whatever synergies you can come up with in combining a barbarian with a monk or a rogue with a cipher or whatever combinations you want to play. Um, and in addition to that, I wanted to make sure that our subclasses worked well with multi-classing so that you can have a multi-class character that has any two subclasses as well. So if you want to be a barbarian, <clears throat> excuse me, if you want to be a barbarian who's a berserker and you also want to be a rogue who is a street fighter, you can take those subclasses. You, you're not restricted uh, to what you can take. So it really gives you an enormous number of combinations of characters that you can make. So there are benefits to staying single class. Like you want people to be thinking, should I go multi-class? Should I go single class? Like you're not making an automatic decision to be like, well, I'm automatically going to multi-class because that's better because being single class is bad. Yeah. And actually when, when you, in character creation, you get to a thing where it, it, it talks about like, hey, if you're thinking about making a multi-class character, FYI, there are some drawbacks and it's more of an advanced thing. Um, I think that if a person just made a multi-class character out of the gates, uh, you know, that would be perfectly viable. But it is a little trickier because you have to think more about how do these how do the, these two classes work together and how do they not really work together in, in good ways. So I would say it's not really a no-brainer thing. I think that so far internally, it's proven to be popular. People really like the idea of combining it. They like the mechanics, but they also recognize, hey, if you make a single class character, they're going to get access to the higher level stuff faster. And ultimately they're going to max out their single class faster. Um, and so I think people really, you know, they appreciate like, oh yeah, I mean, if you really want, if you want to be a really focused fighter, then just be a fighter. So can you give me an example of a good multi-class, like a multi-class combination that you think would really work? One that I've been playing around with lately that I like is um, Berserker Street Fighter. <laughs> so it's a barbarian with the Berserker subclass and a rogue with the Street Fighter subclass. And they both, well, the Street Fighter gains bonuses when they start getting outnumbered and flanked. Um, they don't do really well in one-on-one, -on -one, but that's also kind of, it almost in a way makes them... It gives them really nice single target. Uh, so as the street fighter gets more and more people on them or they get like bloodied, they will start to dish out more sneak attack damage and things like that to their single individual target that they're going after. Um, but also barbarians, because they have carnage, they also do uh, great when they're in a big group of enemies. So, and, and then with berserker, um, berserkers, uh, when they frenzy, uh, all their attacks become friend or foe. So you don't really want anyone around them. So a Street Fighter Berserker works, works really well if you just send them out front because the Barbarian side gives them more health. Um, it gives them the Carnage ability to really uh, deal with a lot of enemies. 
And then the Street Fighter side gives them bonuses when they start getting flanked, outnumbered, and bloodied. So they're really doing incredible single target damage. So it's a really nice combination of uh, abilities. My recollection was that you could recruit randomly generated characters yep. in the original Pillars of Eternity. Um, is that where you're, where the multi-classing will primarily figure, or can, you can multi-class companions as well? You can multi-class companions as well. So you can multi-class your own character. You can multi-class companions. Um, companions always kind of have a core identity, though. So, um, for example, for Adair, you either he has one of his classes has to be fighter or rogue. Um, but after that, you can multi-class them however you want. And some people have raised like role-playing concerns about that then don't multi-class them in a way that you think is weird. <laughs> like like I said, I would rather say, you know, it's up to you to, you know, justify Because a lot, sometimes you'll see a really weird character and you'll be like, what? This character is a, is a berserker illusionist? Like, what's, what's the story there? And the person has a cool story. You know, they were like, oh, he was this guy who grew up in this tribe and then he saw these like tricks and these spirits that came out and then he became an illusionist of the tribe or whatever. Um, you know, whatever their story is, like, if it's cool to you, that's all that really matters. On our end, we just want to make sure it mechanically is not going to be broken in a bad way. Like, oh, well, this is not a, this class just doesn't work. Um, but yeah, you can multi-class uh, the companions. There are other classes like, or other characters like Aloth and Palagina or Maya. So Aloth is always a wizard and something. So he can be a wizard, just single class, or he can be a wizard plus something else. Palagina is always going to be a paladin but she can be a paladin and something else. And Maya is always going to be a ranger, but she can be a ranger and something else. So uh, you do have a lot of options for how you want to build those characters. Because if you want to build Maya as a ranger rogue, you can do that, a ranger wizard, ranger priest. If you want to build Palagina as a paladin berserker or you know whatever sort of combination you want, that's your choice. You can do it. All right. Um, speaking of companions, uh, one of the things that I, I believe it was one of the tiers uh, for crowdfunding was companion relationships. And you said that you consider companion relationships to be pretty important. Um, yeah. Why is that? Well, I think that they are, unlike NPCs that kind of drift in and out of your life, <laughs> or antagonists that only appear at certain points in the story, the companions are with you for longer than anyone else in a game. And so you have more time to develop with them individually um, and then as a group. And so I think it's one of the best places for us to put in time and effort to really look at how a character develops, not only on an individual basis, but also in their relationships with other people. And so when we think about companion relationships, one, it's broader than romance, although that is part of it. Um, and it's also broader than just their relationship with you. It's also about their relationship with other characters. And a lot of people remember, and, you know, they've asked about, like, in Baldur's Gate, how if you put, you know, Vakonia next to Khalid, they would start getting really agitated and they would eventually attack and kill each other. Now, maybe that's not the most fascinating example of interparty-like relationship development, but that idea of the characters that are fundamentally, they have real big problems with each other that can develop over time, and then they can explode into conflict and you have to adjudicate them or take sides or choose to stay out of it. Um, I think those present really great role-playing opportunities for the player. And they also seem very plausible um, for a lot of these. For a lot of these characters, like what I said in the, when we did, were talking about relationships is that I didn't want to say, I didn't want to design top-down. I didn't want to say like, there's going to be this many romances and there's going to be this many heterosexual romances and there's going to be this many whatever, you know, this many people who are best friends and this many people who are comrades and this many people who are whatever. 
Um, I said, like, let's write the characters and then, and this is actually a lot of this came from Carrie Patel. She said, let's just write the characters and then as we're writing them, talk to each other about how we see them interacting with each other. And then after we've done a lot of their quest work and their uh, companion arc work, then we'll look at how they're how we think they're going to interact with each other and develop. And so we've come up with, you know, characters that get really irritated with each other really quickly and they're passive aggressive about how they express it. So they can't they can't directly come out and say, I'm really upset about this. They do it in really indirect ways and then backbite and complain to you about it later. Um, you are a Midwesterner through and through. <laughs> like, that is such a Midwesterner thing. That is a very Midwesterner thing. But there are also <laughs> people who are very upfront and say, don't do that. That really bothers me. I, I, I hate it when you do that. And the other person may or may not respond in a positive fashion. Um, and I think the other element that is something that we're experimenting with right now is that the way that topics come up in the game is we want to feel very organic. So, for example, if there's a certain behavior of a character, like, for example, Adair is your racist uncle. Like, <laughs> a lot of people don't realize until sort of a ways into Pillars 1 that uh, Adair is a sort of unwitting racist. And some of the, especially towards Orleans, there's a lot of stuff that he says. Um, don't let him near Facebook. Yeah. And so, like, Without, so for example, without certain opportunities for him to say certain things or without Harabi's around to say certain things, you would never know that. And so other people wouldn't have a chance to react to it. And so what we're hoping is that some of these relationships, they may not appear depending on the circumstances of how you play through the game. Um, you can steer for, you know, it's like if you know, if you know that you're friends with someone who's a little racist and you're with someone who really hates racism, you steer the topic of conversation away from it. Um, we're hoping to get situations like that where you as a player realize like, oh crap, like this person's really going to hate this aspect of this other character. Like I have to, or they've like already told me how much this irritates them when this person does it. I have to make sure that they don't do it anymore. Um, so we're hopeful, or at least I'm very hopeful that we're going to get a more organic a feeling to how they develop because you can write these characters in such a way where it's like there are just certain checkpoints after so many hours the character is going to say this and the character will respond but i i like the idea that it, it feels a little more organic so when someone says can't you see how irresponsible this person is you can say you know i've seen that person be irresponsible like i've seen all these places where they've done this along the way i was there i, I can understand why this person is getting upset it just feels more believable it feels like a more organic development of the relationship so I was never evil in the original Pillars of Eternity, but uh, apparently there's a scene where if you're particularly evil, uh, you can sacrifice one of your party members to a life of eternal term torment in exchange for a permanent stat buff. Yep. Will there be anything as dark in Deadfire? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not like they're all over the place, but there's, you know, there's always, I mean, Skane is still, and, and Skane's followers are still, you know, cruising around the Deadfire. And so there are those folks... Um, there are people like the bleak walkers. There are always sort of the, the really extreme examples, um, of, of cases where like you can be called on to sacrifice someone or give someone up or just do something really cruel when someone's sort of in a vulnerable position. Um, it's not really the backbone of how, you know, choices are architected, but, um, because at a certain point it just starts to feel kind of gratuitous. But um, it is a dark world, though. It is a dark world, but I it's, mean, people are born without souls and stuff like that. That's true. Um, but even so, in Pillars One, it's we didn't actually have a ton of extremely cruel options in a lot of places. We usually said, like, does it make sense here? Does it feel like 
you know, if a person is kind of whining and being a brat, uh, you can be cruel to them because you you sort of see them as weak, as opposed to, you know, you can write cruel a cruel line that seemingly just comes out of nowhere and that it kind of rings false. It doesn't feel like, well, I guess you can just go around being psycho all the time. But if it's if it's less common and it seems more like you're really exploiting the vulnerability of someone when they're down, that's when you, it actually feels like it's more impactful. It feels less cartoonish. It feels more like your character is this kind of bully or predator, which I think is more in keeping with the spirit that we're going for. I see a Roger Zelazny book on your desk. Um, it's not actually mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if it had any... Uh... Uh, Roger Zelazny wrote uh, fantasy books in the seventies. Yeah. I want to say, and mm-hmm. I was gonna. I was wondering. Uh, I was actually. I've read some of those books. Uh, the I can't remember the name of the series, but I, I really enjoyed them. I was gonna ask if they, if he, if his work had any influence on Pillars of Eternity. Oh, not directly. So yeah, but Eric Nair, um, uh, our marketing guy, he um, when he heard about sort of the the, the setup for Pillars. He was like, oh, you got to read Lord of Light. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm probably not going to read that. Because um, <laughs> I, I just don't. I just don't You're really, a busy guy. I just, well, to be honest, I just don't read very much fiction. Um, and uh, but somebody gave it to me. I'm like, okay, I don't know when I'm going to read this or if I'll read it. But uh, so I can say at least on my end that it hasn't impacted me. But um, there are a lot of other people on the team who are. Um, I mean, Carrie Patel is a sci-fi author. Um, so we have people that are, are d- definitely into genre fiction and, uh, so maybe, maybe he's influenced some of them. <laughs> a reminder, of course, that video games are a team effort. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Lots of people are making these games. Yeah, we have, um, we have a lot of folks writing. Um, we have, yeah, so on Pillars 1, it was a little rough because it was really Eric Fenstermaker and Carrie Patel. And then I wrote a little bit of stuff and we had a few other people writing a little bit of stuff, but Eric and Carrie were stretched really thin. And on Pillars 2, we still have Carrie, which is great. We also have Megan Starks, who did writing on Tyranny. We have Paul Kirsch, who did writing on Tyranny. Kate Dollarhide has just joined us. She's doing a fantastic job. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and designers, you know, every designer pitches in a little bit of writing here and there. Um, we're also contract, uh, we also have under contract um, as external writers, Eric Fenstermaker is writing Adair again. Uh, uh, Tony Evans, who used to work for Obsidian, he's doing some contract work with us. And also uh, Casey Hollingshead, who uh, did some writing for Battle Brothers. Um, he's doing some contract writing for us as well. So on the first game, writing writer, writing, and writers were stretched pretty thin. But uh, thankfully, we have a lot more uh, great writers working for us on this project. Uh, a few companions are coming back from the original Pillars of Eternity. Uh, why did you pick the companions that you did uh, for to have a, an encore, I suppose? Yeah, a lot of people have opined that I brought Palagina back because I, I love her to death and want to kiss her on the lips. Um, <laughs> do you want to kiss her on the lips? No, I don't. Um, but uh, I do. I did like the character, but actually the decision on what characters came back was uh, mostly driven by Eric and Carrie. I went to Eric and Carrie um, because they were concerned. I believed it was important to bring some characters back since the Watcher was coming back. I thought there should be some continuity. I said, I don't want to have half our companions be... Um, you know, people coming back from the first game, but I think it makes sense for at least a few of them to come back. And so they had some concerns about which characters would come back. And I said, well, given our plot and the area and how you think the characters were develop would develop over time, what characters do you think would make sense? And they said, Adair, Eloth, and Pelagina. And uh, there were different reasons for each of them coming back. 
Uh, Adair's was probably the easiest to justify. After that, Palagina's was also actually pretty easy because the Valian Trading Company is is huge. Like the first place you meet Palagina in Pillars One is outside of the Valian Trading Company in Andra's Gift. Um, so she was actually pretty easy to fit back into the story. Aloth was a little trickier, but we still found a way that <clears throat> that made sense for us. Sorry. Um, um, so, sorry about that. No worries. So, uh, one of the things that's interesting about Pillars of Eternity, you've got a boat now. It's true. <laughs> and uh, the boat takes the place of your castle Pretty much, uh, from yeah. the original Pillars of Eternity. Um I know that the castle was a, a bit of a point of criticism in the original game. Uh, how do you plan on improving it by, you know, putting on a ship and making it mobile? Well, I, it's it's not really like anything revolutionary. I mean, the, um, you know, KOTOR games figured out like, hey, if you have a ship and Mass Effect, like if you have a ship and you need it to get around, then you're always going to go back to it. <laughs> A stronghold is a little more... I mean, you can structure a game around a stronghold. We didn't do a good job of it in Pillars 1. Um, but a boat is much easier. In the Deadfire, which is an archipelago, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so first and foremost, uh, your ship is a thing that you go back to throughout the entire game. Um, we also have many more... We have a lot of at-sea encounters. So some of these are encounters where you just encounter a natural phenomenon, like a a reef or, you know, a great whale or, you know, some other sort of huge creature. Um, it can be a dilemma that comes up in your crew. Um, these are just like little story events that you as the captain of the ship have to help resolve. And they play out in different ways based on your crew and your stats and the things that you choose to do. Um, and then we also have a uh, ship dueling system that we're developing actually right now. Dude. <laughs> so the ship duels are... If you encounter a ship at sea, either if it's aggressive towards you or if you want to prey on it, um, there's this sort of like game that goes back and forth where you're trying to kind of outmaneuver that ship and uh, have your crew use your cannons on it and deal with the sails and all this other stuff. Um, it's fairly involved, but uh, I think it's going to be pretty cool. Um, I think the way the crew develops uh, should be pretty fun. And, uh, and yeah, and actually like you have a ship, but you also have uh, a number of ships that you can choose from and you can switch between them as, as you see fit, uh, through the harbor at Nakataka. So you start off on the Defiant, which is a dear wooden sloop, but after a while you get opportunities to get other ships and you can switch from the Defiant to those other ships, sail them around. And then if you want to go back to the Defiant or another ship, you can do that as well. So, uh, we've tried to make it pretty easy. We've tried to make the ships very distinctive from one another, um, you can choose what flags you fly. What can you can choose what cannons go on the ports of each ship. Um, each of the crew members, what like what stations they're manning and everything. Uh, and the thing that I'm excited about is every time you defeat uh, a ship at sea, you get uh, this thing called a triumph, which is a little flag from the enemy captain, and it goes on your ship. So you start to get this little <laughs> string of uh, of sort of like achievements from defeating enemy enemy pirates and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a pretty involved system. It's something that um, it's much more central to the game than the Stronghold was in Pillars, where it really felt like it was kind of off to the side. And uh, it's very important for how you navigate the world. And I think the systems in it are going to be pretty fun. 
So can you become a murderous pilot, uh, pirate? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to go around and just try to prey on people, <laughs> you can You can just do that. And, you know, like when you get to a certain point, um, your ship becomes can become pretty devastating. Um, and you're, if your crew is really experienced and you're a really experienced captain, um, you should be able to just be really devastating. Now, if you do that, you start to get a really bad rep with the factions. So that might not be the greatest thing unless unless you just hate that faction, in which case you can just go wild. But you can role play as like Blackbeard, essentially. No, yeah, you can. I mean, I should... Or Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah, I don't want to exaggerate and say it's like piracy the game, but there's certainly like, you can just go around and find enemy ships and just... Or not enemy ships, you can just find ships and attack them all day long if you if you really want to. <laughs> That's really cool. I, I'm, I'm all in on that. Um, and by the same token... Because you are pirating, uh, pirating, piloting a ship, crewing a ship, um, you've also changed the way that you move around the map and things like that. Yeah, I really, I really like. Um, so exploration, I think, is an important part of role playing games in general. And in Pillars One, we did it through the the individual maps themselves. Um, but a lot of people, you know, kind of felt like, due to the nature of the maps, the size of the maps, uh, the nature of the content in the maps, that they weren't getting a ton out of them. Um, so we've tried to make our individual maps more focused on the, which is what Baldur's Gate 2 did. They, they focus much more on the, the quest critical content in the area. And the world map itself is explored more like um, it is in Fallout 1, Fallout 2, Battle Brothers, where you have a little token on the map. And in, when you're at sea, it's your ship. When you're on land, it's a little, little uh, token walking around. And you explore and you find things and you can find ruins and go in. You can find a trip over encounters in the middle of a jungle. Um, And when you start out, you are seeing a very small part of a very large map. And uh, (laughs) it's, there's been a number of occasions where, you know, Bobby and all our lead designer and Kazaruga have been like, this map is so big. Can we make it smaller? And I'm like, well, you can make it a little bit smaller, but don't make it too small because there is, I do want there to be moments where you hit open sea and you just go, there's nothing here, like there's nothing around me, not in the sense of like, there's nothing here to do, but like, holy crap, this is so vast. Like there's just islands and ocean in, in all directions. Um, I remember, um, you know, in the eighties playing the Ultima games and you go out in your boat in the sea and you just scour and look and look and look to try to find secret things. And you find, and when you find those secret things, it can feel really, really rewarding and so that is uh, that's something that I would like to recreate with how a world map exploration works. If you want to just follow the crit path, you can just follow the crit path. People mark stuff on your map. You sail towards it. You get a few encounters. But if you want to explore, there is a really big map full of crazy stuff for you to find. And one of your stated goals also is to try and avoid filler uh, encounters and that yes. kind of thing. Um, what does that look like in Deadfire? So... When when an area designer blocks out an area, they need to... So the block out is where they sort of have a gray box representation of what their level is going to look like. And they give us... They talk through the flow of that level. And they also have to do a breakdown <clears throat> showing the screen layout and where encounters are, where secrets are, where conversations are in the level. And we talk through the encounters. And if we find encounters that feel like hey, is this encounter just like the other encounter over there? Just get rid of it. Like, either get rid of it or make it a different encounter. Um, We also just look at overall density. Like, if we look at a map and we see, like, this is a four-screen by four-screen map and there are eight encounters in it, you don't need that many. (laughs) Like, four is probably fine. 
maybe five if you can make a really amazing encounter. If you can't, just let it go. It's okay. We don't. You don't need to have a fight every screen. You don't need it to be a drop down, dra- uh, knock down, drag out fight. And um, you know, we rely more on like patrollers to adjust pacing. So we really like having patrollers to either you know, accidentally start a fight, maybe pull an encounter into a hallway or to be the surprise element that comes in from behind. Um, also to assist with stealth gameplay or make a stealth challenge for you to get by. But overall, it's just about kind of like letting go and, and trying to say like, you know what, it is, it is actually okay if the content in the screen is not a fight. It's okay for it to be. There's some examinables. There's some chests that you can loot, a cool, unique item that you can find. And then you can just move on. It's okay. It doesn't need to be jam-packed with fighting. So you can bring the Watcher over from the original game. Um, choices remain intact. Com- dead companions are still dead. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that impact the design of Deadfire? Because I, I remember one thing that uh, happened with Mass Effect was that when they were trying to do that, it, it got a little out of control in terms of like all the different choices and everything. Well, I think in my experience, it's about isolating the reactivity. Um if you try to make a huge branch of reactivity based on a, on a choice, that's where you're going to run into a lot of problems. If you sort of say, hey, let's look at all the things that we want uh, to respond to throughout the course of the game and take them like individually one at a time. Like we can have someone comment on this here. We can have this person do this thing over here. We can have this character come back in the scene. It's really just a cameo to go like, holy crap, that person, they lived. They actually made it over here. Like, you know, let's say that you, there was someone at your castle who came who was an escaped criminal and you're like, you know what, just get on a ship. I, I paid passage for you to go to the dead fire. And then you go to the dead fire and you're like, hey, it's the guy that I, that I said to go here. Um, and we use the, uh, you know, much like Tyranny did a great job of doing callbacks to the choices you made in the, in the prologue, um, in the conquest phase. And so we're going to, uh, we're trying to do that much more so that like when you see someone, they don't necessarily say, hey, remember when you did this thing? But if you hover on a thing in their line, you can say, like, you made this choice back then and you remember, like, you actually did this. So that was, that was a nice, unintrusive way that Tyranny was able to make a callback to previous decisions you had made without having the character kind of, like, repeat everything for the sake of the viewer. Um, so I, from, from my perspective, it's really about isolating those individual reactions instead of trying to make a huge, you know, divergent story based off of them. And with that, Pillars of Eternity is like steadily growing and it's becoming like its own universe. It's like pretty exciting in that regard. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, the whole point of really doing this, we wanted to make a game, of course, but um, the most valuable thing to a company outside of its employees, which who can leave whenever they want, is uh, their intellectual properties. And that's one of the reasons why publishers never allow (laughs) independent developers to keep their uh, property unless, unless they, you know, there's no choice. Um, it's actually one of the reasons why Ensemble was able to, <laughs> to hold out as long as they were. Um, but uh, for us, Pillars of Eternity is a thing that we want to grow into a universe that we can, you know, we've had a board game. I'm designing a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, you know, personally, I would like to see a turn-based tactics game that's really, like, really super-duper focused. Um, I think there's all sorts of stuff that we can do with it. I think Fergus would really love to do like an open world first person exploration game set in this, in this world. And uh, yeah, we just want to keep on growing it. Um, I try to be respectful that there are going to be people coming after me working on this. So um, I only really try to design what I need to, to make the games work and like leave, leave empty spaces for the future. I want there to be a place for 
you know, the next generation of designers, if they are designing in Pillars of Eternity, they're like, here's a new continent and here's a new thing and like a new story. Um, so I'm trying not to not over-design it. As much, as much lore as there is in Pillars of Eternity, I could just sit and write lore all day long. But um, <laughs> You did tell me earlier today that you once sat and wrote a 1,600-page uh, design document. That's true. Um, and that was in a world that already had a full set of lore. Um, but for this game, I really try to stick to just what's essential to both establish the story and also to... There is something outside of that, though, and this, um, you know, people have sort of commented, some people really love the lore, some people don't. Um, the reason why there is a lot of lore in Pillars 1 is because I'm trying to capture a feeling that I had as a kid going through the Greyhawk box set and the Forgotten Realms box set, where you sit and, like, digest the idea of this world as a whole thing before you even make a character. Like, by the time that I made my first Greyhawk character... I already knew all about the Kingdom of Ayas and the Theocracy of the Pale and Nyrond and all these other places. And so I made a character sort of that fit into this big thing. Um, and I think that a lot of people who, especially people who grew up in the 80s playing D&D, didn't spend as much time playing as they spent reading the books. <laughs> and so that's kind of the vibe of like the lore. Um, but there's still so much more that can be developed. And um, I try to leave that stuff blank so that when other designers come along later, they can just go wild. So, really quickly before we wrap up, uh, original Pillars of Eternity also come into console. How involved are you with that? And, like, what's the challenges of bringing this very PC-centric RPG over to console? Well, so I am personally not involved very much at all. Um, Obsidian has been, uh, you know, we've had producers and QA folks and stuff like that looking at it and giving feedback. Um, I think it's a really big challenge. I mean, it's one of the, it's a challenge that I personally would not have undertaken. And and one of the things is that I I've worked on console games. I want Pillars of Eternity, at least Pillars of Eternity and Deadfire, to really be as uh, focused on the platforms that we're developing it for. If I start thinking about, well, maybe it could go onto this and maybe it could go onto that, then I'll start to compromise how I think about interfaces, how I think about controls. There are enough compromises. For example, um, I insist that the game has to be playable with a one-button mouse because this is a game that's going to be on Mac. And so Pillars of Eternity can be played with a one-button mouse. That's why if you want to look at the description of something in the inventory, there's a question mark box that you can click and then click on an item. And it might seem silly, but if that's the platform, a lot of people still actually just have one-button mice on Macs. Um, and so I, yeah, that's the sort of stuff where it's like, I, I like focusing just on, on this title, on this platform. I, I'm actually pretty surprised with a lot of the, the changes that they made, which are pretty fundamental. But um, yeah, it's, it was developed entirely by, by Paradox. Uh, we just sort of gave feedback on it over time. Well, if you have not played the original Pillars of Eternity, I strongly recommend it, especially since there have been a whole bunch of updates and there was that big two-part DLC that came along. Um, It's a great RPG. Totally recommend it. And then, of course, you can carry over your progress over to Pillars of Eternity Deadfire, which is just as exciting. So, (laughs) And that is coming out next year. Uh, Speaking of which, do you have any DLC planned for Deadfire? Are you talking about that yet? Um, We've talked about it. Uh, I am probably not going to be heavily involved in doing that. I'm like reviewing um, ideas from uh, other folks on the team, but uh, right now I'm just focusing on Deadfire core game. All right. Uh, Thanks for dropping by, Josh. Or I mean, I suppose, thanks for letting me drop by. (laughs) (laughs) And good luck. Thank you. Thank you.
All right, and we're back. And Nadia, people really responded to that RPG building exercise. Uh, it was yeah, really it was fun. Yeah, exercise. Yeah. Surprised. I'm still getting teams, by the way. People are still sending them in. And here's my favorite one. One of my favorites so far. And you shouldn't be surprised why. I, I bet you can understand why. It's an all-robot team. Yeah. Okay, are you ready? That sells it, yeah. This is from TP. I mean, the first one, obvious, Robo. Of course. Charming, quirky, and a badass in battle, he'd be the leader of my robot party. Not only is he versatile in a fight with offense and defense, but he's surprisingly emotional for a synthetic being. And I love the design, too. It's such a great design. It's so classic, but so good. Number two. I love this one. Uh, This is an obvious one, and I almost wish that I had put them into my party. HK-47 from Knights of the Old Republic. (laughs) Yeah, that's surprising that you uh, looked over him. Yeah. One of the most unique personalities in any RPG, in my opinion. HK might have some personality conflicts with the kinder, gentler Robo, but even Mm -hmm. if he disagrees with things like justice and forgiveness, he is nevertheless obedient to his master, letting out his aggression with sarcastic insults and snide remarks about meatbags. I mean, back in 2003, that was awesome because we were so used to, of course, C-3PO and everything. And yeah, all the, like, obedient, like, nice droids. I sort of feel like the concept of the snarky killbot has been done to death in Star Wars Just at this point. a little bit by now, but he was one of the first. He was definitely one of the first. I also liked, uh, it also reminded me of your droid friend in x-wing alliance who wasn't nearly as good as hk but he was directly the opposite of c-3po in that he (laughs) craved adventure and wanted to kill everything and wanted to just run into battle at all times Uh, it was pretty fun i liked i liked when they had different droid archetypes yeah i do like the way that star wars does droids i think they're usually a lot of fun i mean the droids are always the best part i mean see star wars rogue one that that movie was not that good it was beautiful but a little stayed, and I had a hard time following the the story. Mm-hmm. But the droid was had droid so many awesome. dry one liners. It was great. Yeah, yeah, I loved him. <laughs> All right, Legion from Mass Effect, another great choice. Surprisingly deep character. He brings some humanity to the whole robot team. Humanity, of course, in scare quotes. While others might view the party as lifeless, he can make some very compelling argument that they are just as alive as any group of organic characters. Worker 8 from Final Fantasy Tactics, a round tub of loving badassness. Worker 8 can do some serious destruction with his beam attacks, and why wouldn't he? he is infused with mystical zodiac stone witchery, after all. Besides, his cute, blubbering body provides a nice contrast to some of the leaner Terminator-esque robots in the group. And finally, Nick Valentine from Fallout 4. Wisecracking, mysterious, and surprisingly helpful, Nick could provide some utility thief skills to contrast the primarily DPS abilities of the rest of the members. Personality-wise, I think he'd provide some clever back and forth with HK, since he's certainly closer to the good side of the moral spectrum, but certainly no saint himself. And by the way, Nick Valentine is probably the best part of Fallout 4, like Mm -hmm. easily the best companion. What a great companion. (laughs) (laughs) Nick Valentine appreciation thread. I mean, I, I, I don't think he played much of Fallout 4, but I, I think that you would really enjoy Nick Valentine's story. He, his story is definitely the m- most fleshed out out of, out of all of them. It's yeah, really I remember like uh, even though I didn't get to play it, you're right because motion sickness. Um, I have heard a lot of like really great things about Valentine. Like he was definitely a he is definitely a fan favorite. If you look at like the Tumblr for uh, Fallout 4 stuff, he's he's on top. A lot of it is to do, I think, with the voice acting. Uh, voice act, Good voice acting in a video game can be so paramount. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, they just nailed it with Nick Valentine. But I mean, I really like this theme idea for the Axe of the Blood God Perfect Party. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that if you can get more themes, I would definitely be interested in reading them. Good on you, TP, for coming up with robot with the robot theme, you, you you knew exactly the way to my heart. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, thinking about it, I don't even know why I didn't even consider it, but the Mega Man X crew has been in an RPG. Yes, and, Mega uh, Man Legacy, or what was it, Mega Man X something something. Command Mission. Command Which Mission, was, that was the one. It was part of Fire 5 team, and mm-hmm. the story made no sense, it was not good, but... It was a lot of fun to just fight like these these classic Mega Man X enemies in an RPG battle system. I I enjoyed the game for what it was, mm-hmm. and uh, of course like Zero and X were fantastic fighters. Like they take on like these crazy ass alternate forms. It, it was a fun little RPG. I, I would like to see a sequel, but that'll never happen. So what you're saying is that you just realized now that you could have stuck X and Zero in an in your RPG dream team. Yes, and now I am hitting myself on the head. <laughs> All right, if you got any more perfect parties, send them along. I enjoy reading them. And uh, the the more interesting, the better. Like, I've seen a lot of Chrono Trigger. I've seen a lot of Final Fantasy. But I especially love it when people get into kind of the crazier RPGs, the more interesting stuff, the more historical stuff, and really kind of dig deep into their RPG roots. Okay. Uh, Nadia, last week we did a fall preview for the RPGs that are coming up. And I've been reminded by some people that there are other RPGs that we did not mention. And this is the point where I'm going to quickly read this email from Chris Cobb, who mentions that he's excited for Ease 8, Tokyo Xanadu, Etrian Odyssey 5, and Demon Gaze 2. He was a little surprised that none of them were mentioned in the recent podcast. Yes, uh, I am in. I am excited for Etrian Odyssey 5, and it was my bad for not mentioning that one. Um, yeah, Ease 8. That is a little surprising we didn't do that. Ease 8, for sure, uh, is going to be interesting. And you're playing that right now, Nadia. I am playing that right now. Um, I, I guess I don't know how much I can talk about with Embargo or not, but just uh, I can generally say I'm really enjoying it. Like It is very much an Ease game in that, and this is something we have talked about several times in the past, it's dependable, it's fun, it's good. It's a, a good... It's a, it's a good way to spend your time. The characters are fun, you know. You have the the running jokes with like Adol getting washed up after a storm. Like this is how his adventure starts every single time. It's it looks good. It it sounds great. Interesting thing about Ease games I find is that has they always have fantastic soundtracks. Except the music you hear almost never matches the environment, which I just love that. That's that's nuts. But um, yeah. <laughs> so far I'm I'm really enjoying the game. And if you are considering it, yeah, I think. And you're Ease fan, yeah. I think you'll you'll have a good time. Same Ease, old, same old. Ease so much fun because of just that thumping soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> it's just going. Especially right? like early in the game, the first like soundtrack you really hear is like this uh, is this soundtrack you hear for a, a place called like the Nameless Shore, and, like this tropical paradise. And it's just like this really thumping, rocking soundtrack as you're like exploring an abandoned shore. Like, sure, why the hell not? Etrian Odyssey Five uh, certainly is a game that I intend to play, and it is. One of the games, along with Pokemon Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon, Fire Emblem, uh, a whole bunch of others, Metroid Samus Returns, that it's made it, it an unexpectedly killer year for the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah, what a way to go out. Yes, exactly. So thanks for mentioning those, Chris. Yes, they are definitely on our radar in terms of great RPGs that are coming out this fall. 
And of course, you can, if you want to participate in the discussion, we've had some pretty good discussions going in our show notes of late. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were talking about Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and those character designs. They seem to really be bothered by them, Nadia. Yeah, but like, the first game had really goofy character designs too. Like, it's just something that it the series does, I suppose. Yes. And Rider Kicker says that you should definitely play Stick of Truth. Uh, he says that, I played through the game as a Jew, but I rarely used his special abilities, finding great pleasure in using the Master Control Top. I never realized the main thrust of the job class was the suffering only makes him stronger. <laughs> <laughs> Which means low HP and or status ailments. Anyway, finding the bow and arrow while combining them with the badges is pretty cool. Because you can literally watch your opponents bleed to death on the battlefield while they hawk up the plague and such. I actually found the last battle pretty tough. Because I didn't know how to utilize the Jew to his fullest potential. But it turns out it didn't matter as the game just ends. No post-game content. If you do get the game, I highly recommend saving up money for Tom's rhinoplasty. <laughs> Nadia, you are Jewish. So this sounds like something that would make you pretty amused. It, it is pretty funny. I mean, there there's different, like, let's, let's face it, I, I have no right to say what's offensive humor and what's not. But mm. I have a very twisted sense of humor. So speaking as myself, as a singular Jew... That's pretty fucking funny. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. We will be back next week. As always, Axis Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore cap at Nadia at Nadia Oxford. Follow us on Twitch. We stream every Tuesday and Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Next week, obviously, we're going to be playing Destiny 2. Mm -hmm. So that's a thing. I think uh, the the fall season will be finally upon us, Nadia. I hope you are ready for the tidal wave. Uh, Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Try to sound more excited, Nadia. Jeez. Woo, games. It's happening. And I... Can I just say that I always find this to be one of the most exciting moments of the year. When, well, you know as a games journalist, when a game shows up th- on my doorstep that has been hyped for months and months, mm. and I open it up, I'm like, yes, here it is. I finally get to play it, and I get to play it a few weeks before everybody else. This is so cool. Like yeah, That reminds me that, that my, my life is all right. I agree. I agree with that, and I'm definitely looking forward to a few of them out there. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like there, there will be some good ones. I'm actually looking forward to Middle Earth Shadow of War, despite the Shelob thing, which is kind of dumb. Yeah, it's kind of dumb, but I'm sure the game will play great. Yes, but obviously we'll be pretty busy next week. But okay. yeah, we'll be back next week. And guess what? We're gonna have another interview with the Obsidian crew, and it's gonna be about a game that a lot of people love because we're going real in depth on it. So get ready for that. But Until then, we'll be back next week on Friday, as always. Make sure to subscribe to our other podcast, the U.S. Gamer Podcast, which comes out every Wednesday. And until then, for Nadia and Oxford and myself, and of course for Josh Sawyer, thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. See ya. Bye.